This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Frosty relations between Britain and Iran as embassy staff are pulled out. Pakistan's High Commissioner in London explains why his country's furious with NATO. And Lord Ashdown tells us why world events are a cause for concern. The dangers are immense, but the ideas and sometimes even the personalities to drive those ideas forward to resolve these issues are rather puny. British relations with Iran are at a particularly low ebb today after the Foreign Secretary ordered the closure of the British Embassy in Tehran. The withdrawal of all staffers in response to Tuesday's attack on the embassy. William Hague is in Brussels where EU foreign ministers are discussing Iran's nuclear programme. Britain is pushing for further sanctions. Yesterday, Mr Hague ordered the closure of Iran's embassy in London. Hajit Tamourian, who is Iranian-born, is a Middle East expert from the Limehouse Group of Analysts. Hajir, thank you very much for your time today. Why do you think the British embassy was attacked? I think it has largely to do with uh, the internal Iranian politics, but also uh, with the framework of the mind of the supreme leader of Iran, the the only man who really counts in Iran now, the Ayatollah Khamenei. And uh, he seems to me to be more erratic as he gets older. And uh, on top of that, he feels quite uh, isolated from the main body of opinion in the country. Two years ago, he became very, very extremely unpopular when he virtually stole the result of the elections, put the winners in jail and uh, got someone else out, President Ahmadinejad. Now the two men have fallen out. And anyway, the Ayatollah wants to be very popular, but he is resorting to extreme action. Uh, He's trying particularly to endear himself to the hardcore of the regime and of course all the armed forces underneath himself. So this has to do with it and um, it is not the first time that he has shown such uh, irrational action. So was it the Ayatollah who orchestrated the attacks? There is no doubt in my mind at all. For example, if you listen to his main spokesman in Iran, the the Speaker of Parliament, Ali Larijani, the spokesman, uh, the commanders of the armed forces, uh, the main newspaper editors whom he appoints directly, all the chiefs of the National Security Agency, all of these have been backing the uh, uh, so-called students, the mob, the militia, uh, who did this outrage. And at the same time, the the army, sorry, the government of Ahmadinejad is trying to apologise in a puny way. Today, EU foreign ministers are discussing Iran's nuclear programme. That's the real issue, though, isn't it? Yes, I think if the EU foreign ministers do not show more solidarity with Britain, this will be seen in Iran as, in a way, having succeeded. Because when Britain boycotted the Iran-Iranian uh, financial system, including, crucially, the central bank... Uh, the Iranians thought, well, the other EU countries might do the same. So let's do this to their embassy to frighten the others. I thought this would make things worse for Iran. And if, therefore, uh, the others do not withdraw their ambassadors at the very least for a long, long way, long time, then Iran might feel encouraged.
Well, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee also joins us and he's on the line from Italy where he's been meeting NATO military planners. Good to speak to you today, Christopher. Um, mm-hmm. This meeting of Europe's foreign ministers, do you think they will show a united front and agree on new sanctions against Iran? They've got the sanctions lined up. There's nothing to stop them from agreeing it. Uh, before the meeting started, they had already sort of ticked those things they wouldn't have a problem with. So the answer to that is yes. What's fascinating, I was talking um, this morning to somebody in the, you know, in the Italian foreign ministry who spent the past four years in Iran. And I put the obvious question to him. Um, why have, did they go after the British on this? And he was very pragmatic about it. He said, well, there is the point that Hajir has just made, um, that it was the Brits and nobody else who went after the central bank, the Iranian central bank. And that was very important. The other thing, of course, is that the, the two main or the three main enemies to the Iranians at the moment, the way you see it, Israel, United States and the United Kingdom, uh, United Kingdom is the only one with an embassy there to go after. Also, he said, you know, 150 years, the Iranians have seen the British as pretty bad people and dominating people. So, but they're also saying it's a short term. They see it as a very short term uh, problem. So they're talking, you know, if we withdraw an ambassador, it's in fact not withdrawing, it is recalling an ambassador. It's also to make sure that the Prime Minister can actually talk to the ambassador and say, what the heck's going on there? So so if it is short-term, Haji, is it not that serious, what's happening at the moment? It's very, very serious. Uh, Most Iranians at the moment are worried about the growing isolation of their country. Iran's economy really is on on its knees uh, because of the way there's huge corruption inside the ruling system. Huge amounts of money are spent on virtual terrorist forces such as the Revolutionary Guards, and the Iranian people are suffering from unemployment, poverty, etc., and they are worried in case this might even result at least in some aerial bombardment of Iran by outsiders. Christopher, how do you see things escalating? Do you think that is a possibility? It is a possibility. What, the aerial bombardment, no, I don't think that's a possibility, certainly not at the moment. But there's something else I mean, Hishir touched upon, and I may be wrong about this, I think we have been hearing indirectly about more public street protests in Iran than are actually reported in news bulletins, newspapers, etc. Um, it's something which we shouldn't underestimate. We feel all the time, don't we, that, oh, well, you know, the, the, the uh, supreme leader, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and Ahmadinejad have got things under control. They have not got things under control. And the more the economy gets into a sharp bend, the less they will have things under control for themselves. That is when what happens then, people retaliate. People in the form of either the the conflicting uh, sides of Ahmadinejad on one side and the the supreme leader on the other. Uh, Tajir, many people have been making comparisons with the anger shown against the West in Islamic Revolution in 1979. Do you think they're right to do so? No. Uh, A BBC poll, interestingly, conducted with the uh, Guardian newspaper found that Iranians, the people of Iran, are the most pro-American state in the world after India. So there is a clear division between the Iranian people, particularly the young, and their ruling Islamist uh, regime at the top. So uh, yes, 
uh, Christopher was right uh, uh, to talk about on unhappiness demonstrations. For example, the leaders of the union of bus drivers in Tehran at the moment have been arrested en masse because uh, they had not been paid for such, such a long time and they demonstrated and some of them have been taken to the notorious torture centre Evin in North London, North Tehran. Well, Hajir Tamourian, there we must leave it. Hajir Tamourian from the Limehouse Group of Analysts, thanks for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, Lord Ashdown talks to us about the future of NATO and why we should be worried about the Balkans and how the Royal Navy is leading the way in the fight against barnacles. Tensions are high between Pakistan and NATO after a NATO airstrike which killed 24 Pakistani soldiers on the border with Afghanistan. Pakistan's foreign minister has suggested the country will withdraw its support for the US-led campaign if its sovereignty is violated again. Pakistan has pulled out of an international conference in Bonn next week on the future of Afghanistan. All week, the border between the two countries has been closed to NATO traffic. Wajid Shamsul Hassan is Pakistan's high commissioner in London, and he's been telling BFBS about the depth of anti-NATO feeling in Pakistan. Well, I feel that we are being constantly hit below the belt by our friends in the West, especially the United States. You know, we have lost 9,000 soldiers and, and generals and brigadiers, 35,000 civilians, and economic losses incur over $68 billion in the last seven, eight years. Well, he went on to explain why Pakistan won't be going to next week's conference in Germany. I feel so bad about it. You know, the United States and the West, entire West, has been calling for having democratic world in the Middle East, having democracy in the Middle East, talk praises of Arab Spring. And here is a democracy in Pakistan after many, many years and you are destabilizing it. You have pushed the government, democratic government, to the wall. You have taken all this space out of its hands to act in this war on terror. Now, what, why we boycotted the bond? You, I'm sure you, you were to ask me this question, why have we boycotted the bond? This is because of public demand, the unanimous decision of the cabinet. Plus, all the people on the streets don't want to have anything to do with all this Afghanistan affair or Bonn affair or with the Americans. Mind you, there is a sort of uh, sympathy for the British for all the support they have been extending to us. They have been definitely a very trusted friend and we appreciate that. I would like to convey it to them. And we appreciate the role British soldiers are playing there in Afghanistan. They are laying their lives for a cause which they think is genuine. But unfortunately, we don't know what Americans want, what, what the West want, the rest of the NATO wants. That was Wajid Shamsul Hassan, Pakistan's High Commissioner in London. Uh, Christopher Lee is still with us on the line from Florence. So Christopher, what do you think of what, what he said there? Yeah, he's uh, it, got a lot of points there. The, the, the Pakistan army has lost a lot of people, including very senior officers. They've also lost a lot of civilians. And the Pakistan army and the Pakistan government has been they feel humiliated on a number of occasions. We've seen during the past year, um, especially from the Pakistan chief of staff, uh, warnings to the United States, stop the predator attacks along the uh, Waziristan border. Um, stop putting your own CIA agents in and 
to doing those nightly strikes against Taliban. We'll not have it because you again, you're, you're violating our borders. When he says, the High Commissioner says, OK, the Brits, trusted friends. There is, a, there is a distinction here, isn't there? He is not trying to sort of divide. He is basically saying, we do not understand what the American policy is. Well, the American policy is very, very simple. Talking here in NATO and all the countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom, are represented at this meeting, they are saying American policy is to get the security of Afghanistan into some shape by the time they have to follow President Obama's distinction of saying, right, all out by 2014, mm. all combat forces out by 2014. That's all it's about. Oh, you, well, you have always made the point that Pakistan is the key to stability in Afghanistan and, and other countries surrounding. Will this whole process be set back then if Pakistan is not on side? Uh, Pakistan will be on side, and one particular reason is because they don't want to see India take over the role of Pakistan. When there is a new Afghanistan government, for example, or it's running by itself, it's got to make sure, Pakistan has got so, to make sure the Indian influence is not overriding Pakistan influence. So Don't pa forget, it's one of the biggest economic prizes in the whole region, that region of, of, of Asia, and they're not going to let that go. So Pakistan has to be on side. How do you see this current situation being resolved? <sighs> I've seen it six times, I've counted six times this year so far, when we've got to close to this sort of thing. This is the worst. There have been infringements, there have been attacks, there have been people killed, Pakistanis killed, uh, etc. Et I think it will work itself out. I think this one's going to run for some time. It's not, not even going to uh, sort of cool down by this year. But again, the people here in, in, in Italy at, at, at the NATO conference are saying, rather like the Iranian thing, Listen, let's put it in bigger context. Let's imagine where we are in 18 months' time, 12 months' time. Uh, that's when you'll find people saying, now, was it December or was it November that we had that thing of stopping the NATO convoys going through? And that's the reality. That's the realpolitik, as they say in, in, in continental Europe. That's the realpolitik of what's happening in Af Afghanistan and Pakistan today. Briefly, the High Commissioner compared Pakistani democracy to the Arab Spring. Is he making a fair comparison, do you think? No, I think it's fanciful. I mean, the Arab Spring is exclusive. What is interesting, and we go back to Iran, it's exactly the same thing. The biggest difference is, if you like, the mobile telephone. More people in Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Iran, etc., know what's going on and how reactions are in the rest of the world. And that is a, that's an, that's a, a, an aspect of this whole sort of conflict that we've never seen before. And Indeed. that's why people don't know how to play it. All right, Christopher Lee in Florence, thank you very much for your time today. And of course, we'll get you to talk a bit more about what you've been doing in Italy when you're here next week. Well, someone with a lot to say on the subject of NATO is Lord Ashdown. The former Royal Marine went on to work as an intelligence officer before moving into politics and becoming leader of the Liberal Democrats. He later became high representative for Bosnia-Herzegovina. I spoke to him earlier and asked him how NATO can sort out its current problems with Pakistan. Better liaison, better coordination. I didn't think the coordination, particularly in those sort of no-man's lands, bad lands, uh, in that particular area of uh, the border, of course a border defined, or at least shall I say not defined, um, by the British in the middle of the 19th century. 
Um, by the way, my father fought up there in the Indian Army in, in, in the 1920s, so uh, by association I know it quite well. Look, the, the truth is it's ill-defined. That means that your coordination cooperation has to be much closer. It's not as good as it should be. This is a very tragic incident which arises from the fog of war, which will occur in all circumstances. The best way to cope with it is to make sure that um, we have the closest relationship, closest operational cooperation that we can possibly achieve. In terms of diplomacy, can Britain actually achieve anything now in the strained relations between the US, NATO and Pakistan because of its relationship with Pakistan? Well, we have to. I mean, it's in the interests of both sides. They put this behind them. It is a tragic um, a tragic accident. And, of course, one's, one's heart goes out to those who have been, to been killed and injured. But um, it is in the interests of both countries to cooperate more closely. The threat of al-Qaeda, the, the, threat, the threat of extremist Islamist terrorism, is a threat to both states. The only way to uh, tackle that is to work more closely together. In terms of NATO, you've said in the past what America sees in NATO is yesterday's vision of the future. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I, you know, NATO will remain and um, must remain our key alliance. But in my view, um, we are now moving into a multipolar world, and the difference between the last 50 years, a rather unusual period in uh, in our history, is that we're coming out of a monopolar world when all the compass needles for or against had to point to Washington. Increasingly, we're coming into a multipolar world. My view is that the United States will remain the most powerful nation, but the context in which she holds her power will be much more multipolar, a bit like Europe in the 19th century. And increasingly, we're going to have to not only agree to agree, which we need to do as often as we can, but also agree to disagree, where we have different priorities. Uh, and above all, when we agree to agree, NATO, and that means the European element of NATO, has just got to be a bit more hard-headed about delivering the capacity to, to act. Uh, I get very depressed by the fact that the only countries who take defence seriously in Europe are Britain and France. Um, and yet, uh, here's the bottom line, Kate, that, Kate, that uh, you know, we now see a world which is much more hostile to Europe, the Americans turning the Pacific, the Russian president, highly assertive, just about to be elected again, a rising Russia, a more powerful India, a coming Brazil. And if Europe doesn't understand the right reaction is to deepen the institutions of its defense and foreign affairs, then it's a bloody fool and the next decade is going to be much more difficult. And they, far too few in Europe understand that. Is there a future for NATO? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it will remain the primary alliance for those of us who believe in Western ideas, Western values, and the liberal approach to um, a, a, a world in which human rights are important and in which you have to be able to be prepared to intervene in the domestic jurisdiction of other states in concert with others, by the way. We'll increasingly have to do this with others on board, like in Libya rather than just NATO, in order to preserve the wider peace. NATO will, has been and will remain one of the bulwarks of that, but not the only one for the future. Some people have spoken of a European defence force. Is this a viable alternative? I can hear you balking at the question. A viable no, alternative no, no, I mean, to I'm, NATO? I'm no, absolutely not. I mean, go to Washington and they'll tell you, rather than seeing this as by the way, the Americans did see it five or six years ago as somehow another competition to NATO. Washington is desperate for Europe to act more together, desperate for us to be able to work together to make sure that the money we spend on defense 
um, is not wasted on individual procurement. Uh, desperate to see Europe, uh, desperate to see the vision, which actually began with Kissinger and Kennedy, of a twin pillar NATO in which both sides spoke as co-equals rather than a NATO constructed around a giant at one hand and a collection of pygmies at the other. So quite the contrary to European uh, defense cooperation being something that Washington doesn't like. It's on the contrary something that Washington very much hopes to see. Now, your question was slightly different. Could you see a European Defence Force? I have to say at the moment, no, uh, because there are far too many countries who still think they have a European, uh, the US protection and aren't serious about hard defence. Um, however, could we grow one? answer to that is yes. I think if we were to use the Anglo-French cooperation and above all extend that cooperation into defence industrial cooperation, we could create organically a centre of defence cooperation in Europe, which others would be bound to join. So we do organically, as it were, by stealth, um, what um, I don't think it's open to us to do and we shouldn't do by Brussels telling us what to do from the top. And yet all of this comes against the backdrop of the European debt crisis, defence budgets sure. being cut or about to be cut in many countries. How can but that's why it makes so much more sense. I mean, the truth is... Because you have we, to group together to save money, basically. You, you, listen, if you were to able to, if you were to create and that's why I think that's why I think the government by the way has got it wrong it thinks that the um, London Paris defense initiative can be driven by generals in a room deciding how to cooperate at the top but we did that in the first world war I did that when I worked with you know Netherlands Marines in the 1980s um, but this is about something much more fundamental if we began to seriously integrate our defense industries so we move towards a much more common procurement process which I think is but we can't even possible. sort out our own procurement can we well, well we but, but then, but that's, that's, that is not a reason to try and do better. I mean, listen, I represented for nearly two decades Westland helicopters, and one of the great successes of Westland was working with the French and with the Italians. I know it can be done. If we did that on a broader basis, we'd get much more, um, we'd get much more value for our money. And who knows, you may create a European defence industry which would, might be able to act as a genuine competitor to the might of the United States in this field. In terms of the debt crisis, we've seen the kind of instability it can cause in countries like Greece. Could this kind of unrest conceivably spread, making Europe vulnerable, do you think? No one can say no to that, Kate. I mean, you know, we live in this strange age where, you know, an age, it seems to me, full of febrile fragility, an age that I'm afraid reminds me rather like 1910, where there are piles of tinder around the world and they could be very easily lit. I mean, is there much difference between starting a whole Arab revolution which spreads across the whole of North Africa because an individual vegetable seller couldn't sell his vegetables from his cart in Tunisia and uh, Europe being set ablaze by the assassination of an archduke on the corner of a Sarajevo street? Um, we are living in an age now which is, I think, hugely, t potentially turbulent, very fragile, and I can't easily see um, how we get through the next period without taking great risks, and one of those risks is with turbulence. Now, the way we cope with that is to make sure that our democracies are connected to our people, not disconnected. And just remember, when you see this thing with Facebook, it isn't just on the streets of Tripoli. We've had it on the streets of London, too. I think the best way we do it is we begin to understand that working together to pool our sovereignty, let's say in Europe, gives us more clout in a more hostile world. I know that's not popular, but it doesn't mean to say it isn't right. Um, one of the things that worries me is, looking around the world at present, the dangers are immense. But the ideas and sometimes even the personalities to drive those ideas forward to resolve these issues 
are rather puny. To speak uh, specifically about the Balkans, as the former High Representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina, what do you think about the recent attacks in the region on the Kosovo-Serbia border, on NATO peacekeepers by Serbs? Is it anything for us to worry about? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, you know, the moment that... um, It was once uh, Bismarck, I think it was Bismarck who said the the Balkans aren't worth the bones of a Pomeranian grenadier. Well, we proved that wrong twice in this century, this last century. Any time there's violence in the Balkans, that's a dangerous moment. But my view of the Balkans has always been that... Kosovo is not the issue. Um, Kosovo is one of those issues which time will solve, and probably only time will solve, because there's no alternative but to have a Kosovo which is independent of Serbia because of what Serbia did uh, in before the Kosovo War. The real powder keg, the real danger in, in, in the Balkans has always been, remains and has always been Bosnia, and it fills me with deep, deep regret that I'm afraid the Bosnia that I saw going forward towards unity and possible membership of the European Union in, in 2006 has been allowed to fall back into dysfunctionality, criminality and corruption. And something for, that which I, for which I blame, of course, some of the Bosnian politicians, but I also blame, I'm afraid, some of the Western leaders, and in particular Brussels, that has followed a policy in Bosnia which I think is very foolish and potentially very dangerous. And something which could have implications for ourselves. Well, self-evidently, um, you know, just let's remember, Bosnia and the Balkans are not the expansion of Europe beyond its borders. They are unfinished work within the borders. And, you know, we need to remember and recognize... I don't say that Bosnia will go back to conflict. I don't think that's the most likely outcome. But I don't, for the first time in my life, as a result of the foolishness of Western policy and above all the policy of Brussels, I'm afraid I now can't discount that possibility. It's not a great one, but it now is there. And that worries me very gravely. And to return, uh, finally, to one of the pressing international stories of this week, the frayed diplomatic relations between Britain and Iran at the moment. As a former diplomat yourself, how do you see the situation? I think this is um, a piece of troublemaking um, by the Iranians. I I, I think it is serious, um, but not catastrophic. Um, I think we have to maintain international unanimity on making Iran a pariah state. I would not go around saying what I wouldn't do. Why should you tell your enemy what you won't do? Um, because I think the important... But the important thing at the moment is not to be rattling sabers at Iran. That will only have the effect of uniting the divisions in Iran behind their government when we should be following policies best designed to widen those divisions within Iran. Um, so I would continue as we are doing at present, continue to maintain international um, unanimity on Iran, the pariah state, um, but recognise that somewhere up ahead, a year, 18 months, two years, there's a threshold which, if Iran continues to act as it does, may have to be crossed, and we may have then to think in different terms. Lord Ashdown, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Now, for as long as sailors have set to sea, they've been faced with a sticky and persistent problem. How to keep the hulls of their ships free from things like barnacles. Nowadays, the problem is known as biofouling and can have a serious impact on performance and running costs. The Royal Navy has been trying to overcome it for centuries, but until now, the only solution has been bad for the environment. But now, as Tim Cooper reports, there's been a breakthrough. In Portsmouth Navy Base, HMS Illustrious lies alongside Fresh from a Refit. 
As you'd expect, her hull is in pristine condition, and chances are she'll look as good and consequently be as efficient in six years' time. She's the latest ship of the Royal Navy to be painted with a special anti-fouling coating. It's been developed for the Sea Systems Group of the MOD at Abbey Wood in Bristol, as Gary King explains. They work very much like a, a non-stick pan technology, that uh, movement of the, uh, the ship through the water, certainly at speed, uh, removes all the fouling that would normally attach itself to the hull. The Royal Navy has always been at the forefront of anti-fouling, understanding early that the barnacle is the enemy. <laughs> In the late 18th century, the British fleet plated their ships in copper. This released chemicals, which killed algae, mussels and barnacles. It was more than the ships just looking nice. It gave the UK fleet a huge advantage over the French in terms of manoeuvrability, speed and staying power. But if the problem was solved in the 18th century, why are we talking about it now? Well, copper and the later system tributyl tin, which has recently been banned, harm the environment. King again. It was mainly um, very heavily loaded with biocides, with coppers, and uh, basically paints that we use to, to kill off uh, organisms which would attach themselves to the hull. So they're quite poisonous. Okay, here we come. I've come to the National Oceanography Centre to meet Dr Ken Collins from Southampton University. Let's pull this one up. I'm on a pontoon in Southampton water being shown test panels of metal with different coatings. It's fairly heavy. The centre's involved in evaluating and developing anti-fouling coating and believes the Royal Navy's taken a big step forward. I, th I think it's, it's excellent because the, the copper, which is so popular, although it's not as toxic as the old-fashioned TBT paints, is still toxic. And certainly in harbours and marinas we have build-up of the copper, which is toxic to many marine organisms. And so entirely non-stick system with no poisons in is hugely preferable. But what is the fuss about a few barnacles sticking to your hull? Surely something so small can't impact on a huge warship. Well, it can, and in many ways. Firstly, the ship's performance can be reduced by up to 40%, making it harder to handle and costing much more in fuel. Biofouling also increases corrosion, meaning more time in dry dock. The third problem is that sea creatures from around the world get moved about. Hence, in Southampton, we find far eastern colonies of creatures who've no reason to be here. Dr Ken Collins. The sea squirts, that's, that originally came from Japan, this one, on warships as a byproduct of the Korean War. You see a lot of these white tubes. Mm. They came in on car transporters like we've got in, in the background here. The problem of biofouling may seem small in global defence terms, but it's one of those niche areas where if there's work, as there has been, and it successfully develops a product, it can save time, money and the environment. Tim Cooper reporting. Well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to our guests and, of course, Christopher Lee, who'll be back in the studio next week. Don't forget you can tweet us at BFBSSITREP or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. I was Kate Jabot. Bye-bye.